Hi, everybody, and welcome to A Walk Down Memory Lane, brought to you by Kamali Electric. I'm Wayne Soares. What a great pleasure today to welcome my guest. He is an absolute hockey legend, inducted into the United States Hockey Hall of Fame in 2014 and the New York State Hockey Hall of Fame. He's a recipient of the Lester Patrick Award back in 2000. Just so many accolades and achievements. It's a great pleasure to welcome a very dear family friend, Lou Vero to the program today. How you doing, Coach? I'm doing good, and uh, thank you for inviting me on. Well, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to to talk with you. Now, we're going to get into a, a lot of your, your hockey history and so forth, but you grew up in Brooklyn, and what made you what made you turn to hockey? You've obviously had a tremendous love and passion for the game, and I believe because you grew up in the city, you used to you guys really started playing at a young age on on rollerblades and things like that, correct? Well, roller skates. They had roller four skates. steel wheels. They were called old Chicago skates. A boot with four steel wheels. I loved every sport. Tried every sport. It didn't cost anything to play sports in those days. From kickballs, flat balls, to wiffle balls, to punch balls, to footballs. Uh, basketball. We played every sport in season. We didn't play out of season. Summer was summer sports. Fall was football. You know, I guess basketball was year round. But we played. We managed ourselves. We coached ourselves. We figured out rules. We figured out to be honorable sportsmen without parental interference. Usually. Mothers were home taking care of kids, cleaning homes and cooking and doing laundry, and fathers were working. So uh, that's the way it was. So we needed the police athletic league, our local church or synagogue or whatever was organizing sports in a particular neighborhood. And uh, we managed that it was easy to go to an NHL game or a NBA basketball game. You snuck on the subway, paid 15 cents each way, and with a school, what we call general uh, organization uh, card, you, I, I went to Ranger games, saw the greatest players in NHL history, basically, for 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Same with the NBA. Dodgers charged the quarter on Saturdays, and you played catch with the team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Then you watch batting practice in the game, a quarter. And the Yankee games were more expensive, 50 cents in the bleachers, but you wanted a real good seat in the grandstand. I remember it was a dollar thirty-five, and, uh, and and the same over in the polo grounds, half a buck, and you saw great for the game. Who is the who is the, along the baseball sides? And and I I read where one of your favorite players, and he was always very intriguing for me. I was a, a hockey buff back in the day. Of course, growing up a, a big time Bruins fan and a Bob Yor fan. But I read where Gump Worsley was one of your favorite players. Yeah, Gump was a terrific goalie. Played without a mask. <laughs> he he didn't overdo it with uh, training and different things. He just was talented and courageous and funny as all get up. Uh, and a great goalie, and a Stanley Cup champion when he finally won. You know, this Stanley Cup, World Series, all the NBA championships, uh, the one in football, the Super Bowl, mm. it, you got to have great teammates, some depth, and great players. 
there's no secrets in winning in any sport. You got to have the horse. You know, Willie Shoemaker was considered the greatest jockey of all times, and I'm, I'm sure he was a great jockey. But he never won on a mule. It was always a thoroughbred. <laughs> and <laughs> and and you got to have the, you know, you got to have the talent there to achieve something. And Worsley, when he was with the Rangers, he played great. He'd make 50, 60 saves a night. Mm. And they'd lose 3-1, mm. 2 nothing. you know. And then he goes to Montreal Canadiens for Jacques Plante, another absolute great goalie. Mm. And all of a sudden, Jacques is making 40, 50 saves a night, not winning cups, and Worsley's winning cups with the Canadiens. So being in the right place at the right time often is a determining factor in any sport. I'd like to talk a little bit about your your coaching career. You served as a coach of a U.S. junior uh, hockey team at five World U two twenty U twenty championships, four ice hockey world championships, and you coached the nineteen eighty four men's Olympic hockey team Winter Olympics. And of course, one of the things I want to touch on today is you were a major part of knowing you, and you're an extremely humble man. You were a major part of the nineteen eighty gold medal uh, winning men's hockey team. Um, and you are the guy that, um, and I know because this came uh, from Jim Craig, who was a goalie on that team, as well as Michael Ruzioni, um, you brought a different level style of hockey, the European hockey, the, the quickness and the fastness, and you really kind of got away from the, 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 the fighting and the physical part of it. Will you touch on that a little bit, Coach? What happened was I had no plans to make sports my life. Of course, in the wildest dreams, I would have loved it, but I wanted to be a New York Yankee. I wanted to wear number eight, and I wanted to catch. And I I gave it everything I had. I wasn't good enough. And uh, so that went down the drain. And then, of course, in my day, um, see, I'll be 76 in February, so, uh, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I can say in my day, in my day, we had a thing called the draft, which I wish they'd bring back. Uh, I think every American young man and young woman, if they're emotionally, mentally, and physically able, should serve their nation. Not for two years. One year. Go through basic training. uh, Go through advanced training. Maybe you can learn something that will help you when you're done in the area of a trade. Build these, uh, these like Quantum Hut buildings in every town or every city, and uh, let let people serve their nation and let them be ready if ever needed. Hopefully, never needed, but let them be ready. But in the meantime, teach them what it's like to love your country and to give. And you can give by let's say you finish eight weeks of basic. Um, Trust me. You'll be in the best shape of your life, and you'll know what discipline means. Mm. And then advanced training, you might learn a trade. And in the meantime, you are learning to respect, love, and protect your your nation. And then whatever extra time is left, every community needs help. We have disadvantaged people. We have senior citizens. These people, our people, our young people can go into neighborhoods and they can paint houses, they can fix fences, they can clean lawns, they can 
do different things to help communities. I think I think it would make our country a better, a much better country, and a little discipline in it, and some appreciation for what we do have. We basically all live pretty good life in America, and we should be grateful and uh, give something back. So I think that would be a good thing. But I had to deal with that as a kid. I got drafted. I don't know how old I was, 19, 20, 18. I don't even remember. Mm -hmm. But mid-60s, early mid-60s, and off I went. I ended up in Germany. I guess I was lucky I didn't go to Vietnam. I went to Germany 14 months, and that sure opened up my eyes to to another world. And uh, it was great. But I didn't dream of... I just dreamed of maybe owning a pizzeria, get married, have about eight kids, be close to family, and enjoy life. I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't grow up fancy. That would have been enough for me. But what happened is I got out of the army, went to one of my grandmothers on a Sunday, and you know she had a small, uh, a normal small crowd of people for lunch, about twenty-five relatives, <laughs> two freeloaders, and I got bored after lunch. And I asked if I could go into my aunt and uncle had a bedroom there. I said, can I go in there and watch TV? They had a little zenith black and white rabbit ears mm. that you had to get up and turn the channel. And she said, sure, go ahead. So I went in there and I was going through the channels. I hit New York ABC 13. It was Wild World of Sports. Just starting. The worst accident I've ever seen. That guy's skiing and Coming crashing. Down, crashing off and at the beginning. I can't stand one. The, I couldn't stand it. The thrill of victory and the agony imagine. of defeat. That's it. That's the way. <laughs> yeah, that's how the Red Sox used to feel every time the Yankees beat them. <laughs> it's but, true. Uh, it's true. <laughs> but then I, uh, it, there was a hockey game came on, black and white, and... Uh, and I'm saying to myself, this is different. Who's playing? It was Team Sweden against the Soviet Union. And I had never seen that hockey. This was in the 60s and late 60s. I never saw this kind of hockey. And I saw a lot of hockey, and we played as kids roller hockey every day in the winter. But anyway, I'm watching the game, and, and I was fascinated. And it wasn't just the Soviet team. That was outstanding. So was Sweden. These guys skated, passed the puck, received it. They were terrific. And the Soviets ended up winning. That was the gold medal game for the world championships. Might have been 1968. And I said, I got to learn. I have to learn how they do this. I, this is not the hockey I was watching in the NHL. And mind you, I love the hockey and I still do. And hey, it's better than it's ever been. But this was unique hockey for me, different. It was very different, and it was fun to watch. It was so fast-paced, highly skilled, uh, very great teamwork. So they put underneath the TV, you know, that line with, where they write? I don't know what you call it in your business, but uh, it tells you the names of the teams and all this. Mm -hmm. And it said Sweden national team versus Soviet Union national team, and and then they zoomed in on the bench, and I had the coach of the Soviet team with uh, a lovable face. It could have been in my neighborhood. <laughs> and, and, and I just 
it zoomed in and they put his name, Anatoly Tarasov, as we would say in English. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting next to a card table. My uncle used to play pinochle, so he had a pencils and cards and the pads there. So I just grabbed a piece of paper and the pencil, and I wrote down the name, which was hard to do. I, in fact, I had to wait for them to show it again later on. I never heard of a name like that, Anatoly Tarasov. And I crumbled it up, put it, folded it, put it in my pocket. I had a sport coat on because I had gone from church to my grandmother's. Mm-hmm. Well, Monday I went to the dry cleaners and brought that jacket in to be cleaned. I totally forgot all about that. I had my own apartment in Brooklyn. I forgot about that uh, uh, note I put. And as I was walking out of the dry cleaners, the woman called me. She said, sir, you left the piece of paper in your pocket. Do you need it? I said, no, throw it away. She said, well, it looks like a name, something written. I said, all right. So I, I was polite. I went back again. Then I remembered what it was. Can you imagine if I would have walked out, my life would have been totally different, you see. <laughs> like, right. Totally different. Right. So that's why I always say be in the right place at the right time is the most important asset anybody who wants to succeed at anything be in the right place at the right time if you're not you never know what you missed out on so i took it went home and contemplated i'm gonna write that guy a a note i complimented him on his team's victory i told him how much i enjoyed watching the way both teams played especially his and uh, i put it in an envelope went to the post office the next day, Monday, right after work, I ran into the post office, and I remember them saying, Moscow, USSR? I said, yeah. They said, well, maybe you should have wrote this and put it in a uh, an airmail envelope. I said, I don't know anything about that. I'm, Just mail it. They said, well, 289 How much? 289 It was six cents. Not to Moscow. <laughs> and, and you don't have an address. You just have this name. I wrote Anatoly Tarasov, head coach, uh, national team of the USSR, Moscow, Soviet Union. Wow. USSR. I said, mail it. And that was a lot of money. I made 60 bucks a week. Mm. That's what I made. Putting air conditioners in, eight hours a day, sometimes longer, in the heat of the summer in New York City. I loved my coworkers, my boss, and the fact I had a job. I was thrilled. My own little apartment, a very nice girlfriend I had. I was coaching kids hockey. It was great. Hmm. Uh, what more could I want? Yankees were winning. Uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> life so, is good. <laughs> uh, life was good. And, you know, with uh, Italian family, there's always, I killed my laundry would be done. Uh, open the refrigerator, there'd be meals cooked already, and food between the grandmothers and the mother fighting with each other, who's going to do more for me. It was terrific. I had it made. <laughs> so uh, it couldn't get better, right? Well, anyway, months later, and I wish Wayne with all my heart I had this letter. I'm, I'm not a hoarder. I don't keep things. Mm. I, I just don't. I can't stand messes and disorganization and stuff like that. I keep everything neat and clean. And so eventually moving about a hundred times, I bet in my life, I ended up losing it or tossing it. I don't remember, but it came on airmail tissue paper 
and a blue airmail. I thought it was from France. It said Bar Avion. And uh, it was it said airmail in French and then and the other side English. And it was like a bluish color. I open it up and it's like tissue paper and there's three pages and it's typewritten in very difficult English to understand in general. Mm. And ink was in three colors, green, red, and black. Wow. They must have had ran out of ribbons or something. And uh, anyway, <laughs> so those are the Russian a, colors. <laughs> that was a poor country. Yeah. Uh, so it was a letter from Tarasov to me. Wow! And first, it, he was great at insulting people too. The first thing he wrote was, <laughs> uh, "Dear Mister Viral, thank you very much for your warm compliment." and kind letter. However, we Soviets know when you compliment, you steal. You, you so, steal? Steal, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. He said, so you want you want to know how we do things. They have to say, and this is why I'm replying, so happy to reply, in fact, you're the only person from Canada slash USA that has ever written me and expressed kind words about our hockey. We're very proud of our hockey. We've had a late start on it. And we only began after the war in 1945 to develop our game. And uh, we don't have secrets. Today's secret is always tomorrow's common knowledge. Mm. And uh, this is what he wrote, and and and, and he said, uh, however, I'm honored that you would consider our hockey to be at a high standard. So I hereby invite you, use this letter in order to gain a, va- a visa to Moscow, USSR. I hereby invite you to come and to participate and watch and, and with your own eyes. Wow. Well, I eventually, I couldn't afford it. I mean, the ticket was expensive to go, and I had a job and sure. a life. You know, I wanted to, and, and I was a little nervous. I mean, we're in the height of the Cold War. Mm. And I had served in the U.S. Army and was told every day that the Soviets are our enemy. So I, uh, and by the way, that's what they tell their soldiers, too. Mm-hmm. We're their enemies. That's right. So uh, what I did was uh, they came in 1971 or two to, to America, the team, the national team. That's right. And they, and they played a tour of games. And one of the games was going to be at Madison Square Garden. So Amo Francis, dear man, had been a, did so much for hockey in New York, and his kid Bobby played on my team. Hmm. So I went to Amo and I said, Amo, I want to buy tickets for that game for the entire team, and I want them to see with their own eyes a different school of hockey. And I want to meet Tarasov. Maybe you can help me get downstairs after the game so I can meet him. So Amo said. Uh, Tickets are expensive. <laughs> They're playing an exhibition game against the 72 U.S. Olympic team, which won the silver medal mm. in uh, Poro, Japan. 
so I said, uh, well, how much are they? He had a big smile on his face. He said, oh, no, they're nothing for you guys. I'll take care of it, Louie boy. Nice. So he got me 30 tickets or something. I don't remember. And I made everybody get there at a certain time. I wanted them to see the warm-up everything, which was the most unique warm-up I've ever seen. I never, it was like a game. Mm. I've never seen a warm-up like that. And, uh, of course, they won the game, I think, 14-2 to two and uh, <laughs> sat their best players down. And there was a young goalie, 18-year-old kid in the in the net. His name was... Was that Trichak? Trichak, yeah. 18 years old. So anyway, I went down afterwards, and Tarasov was busy. They were protesting against their team being there and all this, and there was security everywhere. And uh, I got brought down there. I got permission to get in there, and I was very patient. And I waited for an opportunity to step forward, which I did. And I said to him, my name is Lou Viro. I'm very Honored to meet you, Mr. Teresa. And he, when I put my hand out, he shook hands with me, and he, was, he didn't know who I was. He was bewildered. I could see it, and the interpreter was there. So he came over. He said, you who? Lou Vero. They call me. In Europe, and in, in Italy, my name's Viral, but Americans always say Vero. Mm-hmm. And uh, I shake, shake hands with him, and I repeated my words, and big smile on his face. He pulled me towards him. He gave me a big hug. He said, I've been waiting for you. Come to Moscow. I said, I don't have enough money yet. When I have the money, I'll come. And when I did have the money, I did go. And and he treated me great. And to this day, I'm extremely close friends with his grandson, Alexei, his, his great-grandchildren, his daughter, Tatiana, and uh, keeping constant uh, touch with them. And uh, now, Coach, didn't you? We're talking right now with Lou Vero, Vice President, Special Projects for USA Hockey. Didn't um, you get invited to his funeral? No, I didn't get invited. But when I heard he died, Dave Peterson was in Lake Placid running a camp, and he called me and he said, "Lou, I was watching uh, some French Channel from Montreal, and I I couldn't understand everything, but they put Tarasov's face up and." Today's date, and then the date that obviously he was born. I, I'm sure he died. So I said, "Thanks, Dave. I'll check." So I have his, I had his phone number, his uh, his flat in in Moscow, mm. and I called it. And his daughter Tatiana, who speaks English, okay, answered, and she said, "Yes, yes, Lou. Papi, Papi died. Mm. He loved you. He loved you. Papi died." So I said, "I would like." comes to the funeral can you send me tell me what the arrangement this is before uh cell phones mm-hmm. and, uh emails and all that so uh she said I, w- I will call you back give me this number and i did and she said it maybe takes time to get through but i'll try and she called me and she told me i had to go what the arrangements were she would handle everything on her end and have someone meet me in at the airport when I arrived, and um, she would handle the, uh, what do you call it, the hotel, everything. So, uh, ah, we had fax machines. She faxed me all the information, and including a letter inviting me so I could get 
uh, a visa. And I had to go to New York to get it. I had such a short period of time. I had to leave that day. I had to run down, uh, get visa pictures, like passport pictures for my visa. My I had my passport, made quick arrangements. And I remember I flew from Colorado Springs late afternoon in a thunderstorm. It was delayed. I had to go to Dallas. Imagine this. Change in Dallas. There were storms there. I got in so late to New York. It must have been one in the morning. Mm. I went to, uh, I had made an arrangement in a hotel near Central Park where the embassy was and got there, got up very early the next morning. I called the embassy. They told me, the guy I spoke to there said, we're not open till Monday. We're, we're closed. I said, look, Anatoly Tarasov, he died. You're a great hockey coach. And I'm going to his funeral. I need you to help me. He died? The guy was shocked. <laughs> and I didn't hear about it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Eight o'clock tomorrow morning, you come. And I did what he said. And he said, and bring, bring prizes. Okay. I, that means bring souvenirs or gifts. Prizes, okay. <laughs> so I had to run down, get some hats, get some things, put it together. And, uh, and he said, you can't pay with a, a credit card or with uh, a check. You must pay with cash. Okay. <laughs> so how much? He said, normally, I forget what it was, a wild figure, you know, $500, whatever it was. But because you go for Tarasa, $20. <laughs> so I showed up with a $20 bill and a bag of uh, nonsense hockey cards. You know, sure, cards. The, the prizes. Yeah. yeah, well, I knocked on the door and I was nervous. Nobody would respond. Finally, a peephole opened and closed quick. And he opened the door. This guy had a had pajamas and a nightcap on. <laughs> and I, I said, what the hell is going on? We're worried about these people in the Cold War. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, right. He, he said, "Come in." I thank you, and we did business and everything. And he, he gave me the visa right there, everything. So then I was set. So now I instead, then I couldn't fly. I wasn't able to book a Delta flight, New York that night. For New York direct to Moscow, I had to fly back to Dallas. Jeez, and in Dallas, change of plane, fly Dallas to Atlanta. And in Atlanta, I flew to, from Atlanta, I flew to Moscow. To Moscow. Wow. I mean, it was exhausting. It was wild. I arrived in Moscow the next day. I'm looking around, and I, I could read Cyrillic alphabet. I don't know why they did that, because most Americans can't. And I, because I get, became so fascinated over the years, I wanted to learn everything I could from these guys. I figured I'd better learn how to speak some language and, and to read, the, at least be able to read, even if I don't know what the word is. Sometimes you can, it's the same word, stop, hmm. and words like that are the same. Just look totally different. So uh, I saw a sign with my name, Lou Viral. I knew my name because it was on the uh, visa. So I went over and I said, I'm Lou. And this guy introduced himself. And I knew I knew him, but I couldn't place his, I couldn't place it. He spoke English, okay. But he said his name so quick, I didn't get it. And I was embarrassed to say, 
what did you say your name was? <laughs> so we went out, and there was a Mercedes with a driver. We sat in the back. said, it's going to take you now to to the hotel. Okay? So we're riding, and I wasn't used to seeing Moscow like this with Mercedes and all that. A little more traffic than normal. Usually the streets were bare when I first started going. So uh, we go to the hotel and walk in, and, uh, and, and Valentin Sitch, who was then the general secretary, he was the sports minister of the Soviet Union, who was the president of the hockey, uh, greets me and the general secretary, Samoya. They're both passed on. One was shot to death and murdered, and the other one, they think the same. Not shot, but was found dead in uh, in Korea. So uh, they were real nice guys. They were so nice to me, and they greeted me and thanked me for coming. And I, I was shocked. I was the only foreigner that attended that funeral. And the only one. And and you really enjoyed a very very close relationship over the years. And and you are and and again uh, you you're. You're going to say, oh, no, 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 but you're uh, extremely well-known, uh, a legend in European hockey. Now, I read a story through uh, Anatoly Tarasov. Did he? Did you invite him to Brooklyn, and he was at your grandmother's house for a meal? Yeah. And he was, yeah, da- he he was, was, he was dancing and eating spaghetti and meatballs. It's what the yeah, story. he was dancing, him and, <laughs> him and Arkady Chernyshev, another great coach, and they worked together with the national team, co-coaches, or one would run it one year, another, they would all alternate. And then, of course, one was in charge of Central Army Team Moscow and the other Moscow Dynamo. And they were both there. I took them on an 18-city tour, introducing dryland training to American players and coaches Mm. in 1979. Mm. And uh, huge amounts of people. I thought we were going to lose 10 grand and I was allowed to, that was the budget. You're allowed to lose 10 grand. I only charged $15 a coach. We ended up making 30 grand. Wow. And it was unbelievable. The crowds that showed up, and we had Dr. Horsky, Ladislav Horsky, which would now be Slovakia, Bratislava. He was Stashny's coach. The Stashny mm. brothers played for him, and he was a great coach, great guy. He was with us. So, yes, it's true. We all went to my grandmother. She invited us to Bensonhurst and, of course, cooked a fabulous meal. She was in her 80s at the time, and uh, they loved it. Oh, God, we had so much fun. My uncles, my dad, they can play instruments. My aunt, so they were singing and carrying on all night for wine, and Tarasov showed up with... When he came to America, he brought the clothes on him, plus a gym suit, and his suitcase, which was tied with ropes and belts and everything else, there were 18 bottles of vodka. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, he was a beauty. <laughs> so he brought a couple of bottles of vodka that night. It was just a wonderful time. Yeah, he grabbed my grandmother and he's shaking and dancing. He, yeah, he was a little hammered and, <laughs> and enjoyed it so much. And she could play the tambourine, so she was doing that. But um, every time I saw him after, he would always say to me, wherever we'd run into each other, once a year, twice a year, he would say to me, he would always say with his 
he didn't he didn't know English. Maybe ten words. He would say to me, "Look, babushka, grandma." Babushka, that's okay. Right. <laughs> Normala, okay. I said, "Da, yes, yes." And he would say to me, "Very, very, very good spaghetti." <laughs> <laughs> you have Anatoly yeah. Tarasov, the head of of the USSR's hockey team, a legend. And he's he's eating spaghetti and meatballs at your grandma's house yeah, and, and, and dancing. Yeah, you know, it, it was a great. We had a great time. He was a normal guy like you and me and everybody else. Nobody's better than other people. We're just normal people. And remember, right place at the right time. right time. <laughs> now you've met so many people in your life, coach. And we're talking again with on a walk down memory lane, Lou Vero, vice president of special projects for USA Hockey. Uh, Coach, uh, it's great to have you on the program here today. You um, you met so many people in your life, but you, you mentioned being a diehard Yankees fan. I, I know you've got a, 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 some great Yogi Berra stories. Any any one in particular stick out? And and before, what what tell me what type of a guy was he? He could have lived on the north end of Boston. He would have been. Just one of the boys, just mm. one of the boys, just a pleasant piece. And his wife, Carmen, was, but they were just very nice people, down to earth, decent people. He was proud, though. He was very proud of his accomplishments and the team winning and all that. He was a very fierce competitor. He loved hockey, loved it. And I was working as an assistant coach with the Devils, and he was very close friends with John McMullen, the principal owner of the Devils. Maybe the only owner. I don't even know if he was by himself with that team. But he was another great guy, Dr. John McMullen. And he also owned then the Houston Astros, and he hired Yogi uh, uh, to be uh, like an advisor or something. Yeah, like he was that. a consultant. I yeah, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe, I don't know if he was bench coach for a while, but I, I know he was involved. And, uh, and he knew Yogi through the Yankees because he was once a minority owner of of the New York Yankees with George Steinbrenner as the principal owner. And he once told me, if you ever want <laughs> if you ever want to define minority, try being a minority owner with Steinbrenner. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Boss was tough. You know yeah, you know your role immediately. <laughs> Zero input. That's Just right. some money. And and he was a good guy. But anyway, I got Yogi would come to our practices and then he would work out with Dr. McMullen. And one time we were at, at the practice, you know, you, I went, I was, I jumped into the hot tub for a little bit, then I'd shower. And who's in the hot tub? Yogi and a few people, you know, some players, different people. So I'm in there and I'm talking to him. I had already met him. And so I knew him, he knew me and we were talking and, I said, Yogi, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> you were the greatest clutch hitter I ever saw. And what, did you, were you a guest hitter? He said, was I a what? Like, did you ever get the bat and... Uh, guess what's coming. Yeah, okay. to, yeah. yeah, try to guess and determine what the pitcher would be. He said, never. Mm. Never. Biggest mistake you can make. I said, well, what was the secret to your hitting? I liked it. I'd get up. If I saw the ball, I'd hit it. <laughs> if I didn't see the ball, the pitcher would win. 
I didn't look for fastballs, curves, high, low, nothing. I looked to see the ball. Mm. And then I just swung and hit it. <laughs> and maybe, you know, we have to blame God for that. Because it wasn't that I knew what was coming. And uh, that's the way he was. And that's how he spoke. And uh, he was a riot. He, was, he said all those things, you know. He really, <laughs> I know there's a book where he says, I really didn't say the things I said. Yeah. <laughs> but he, yeah. did, oh, he, he said stuff like this all the time, but it made sense to me. It, it, you know, you know? I, th- I think Ted Williams, it was, uh, he said about if, if the Red Sox had Yogi Berra, they would have won four or five world championships. That's right. He did say it. Yeah, yeah. And Yogi, uh, I mean, this Yogi man, loved it. Go ahead. I, I'm just going to say, I mean, he had it all. Like you said, he was a great, a great clutch player. He was absolutely, positively uh, a, a defensive stalwart behind there. Um, he he was just amazing. And what did he have, Coach? Ten, ten world championships? Yeah, yeah. He and, still holds a lot of those records. And now it, players can play so many more games because of playoffs and mm. all these different things. But uh, he loved, I got to tell you, he loved Ted Williams. And he thought he was unbelievable. And he told me, this is the first, I, I think he said it was the first game I played for the Yankees, home game against uh, uh, the Red Sox. Ted Williams got up, came in the box, and he said, Lou, he used to take that left foot of his, I think he was a size 20 shoe, <laughs> and he'd dig a big hole, twist himself in, and he's intimidating. I mean, I think Ali Reynolds was pitching, and he gets in there, and he's all set, and I look up, and I said, hi, it said, and he turns, he looks at me, he says, Sh-. he didn't say it so nicely, but <laughs> what I'm going to say, because you're on sure. radio. Sure. But, you know, shut the hell up, you, you little guinea, before I hit you over the head with my bat. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. I, I, I said, what did you do? He said, I looked at him, I said, did you have a good meal last night? Did you guys get in last night? And he just looked at me and smiled. And he, then he said he hit one about 430 feet <laughs> into the Yankee bullpen. <laughs> what and a, when he crossed home plate, he looked at me and he said, uh, what was the name of that restaurant? It was a Dempsey's, Dempsey's Oh, Dempsey's, Steakhouse. yeah. Yeah, it was legendary. Yeah, when he crossed the plate, he looked at him and he just said, Dempsey's Steakhouse. And went to the dugout. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a classic Yogi story. Now, uh, one of the things that, that you were – really noted for as a younger coach when when you would have development camps you invited players from non-traditional hockey areas to these camps so that they would have an opportunity and you would give these players that and I think that's that, that that's just absolutely phenomenal one of the guys that uh you coached and we 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 both know about he thinks very 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 highly of you he's a New York Ranger uh, Hall of Famer, uh, five-time uh, uh, Man of the Year in New York City, which tells you the quality uh, type of person that he is. He was also uh, the Police Athletically uh, Golden Gloves champion for two years in a row. I'm talking about Nicky Fatio, who is a, who is a, a, a legend in himself in in New York City. But you told me a great story one time about Nicky and his in his work ethic, his desire. And I want this to I want you to relate a story, Coach, because it's so important for the young players out there to hear this. And I'm talking about when he was a, the night watchman at the at the hockey arena, and he used to go and bring a bunch of candles. Well, here's what here's 
story with Nikki. I'll say it as quick as I can, but you got to hear a little background to know. Nikki lived in Staten Island. We practiced. We were a team called the Brooklyn Stars. We had our first new rink in New York. Our first rink opened up in 67 in Flushing, Queens. It was the old New York City building, which they turned into an ice rink. And uh, forever I'll be uh, indebted to a guy named Hoving, William Hoving, I think his name was. He was commissioner of parks. He thought it was important we have an ice rink in New York City other than the one in Central Park and Prospect Park, Brooklyn, that were outdoors and they were as big as a football field. No boards, you couldn't play hockey, just skated in a circle. Well, anyway, they made it as best they could to be a hockey rink. It was a, it was a horror show, but it was better than nothing. And um, uh, then they built the new rink, it's still there, called the H. Stark Center in Brooklyn. And uh, that we got our league into there, and I guess it was 1970 maybe or something. Anyway, uh, Nikki tried out for the Brooklyn Stars, which I was coaching, the junior B team, under 20 years of age. He was probably 17 or so, 18. A strong kid. He used to take an above-ground train to the Staten Island Ferry, which cost a nickel in those days. He'd take the ferry to South Ferry, New York City, down the southern tip of New York City, take about three or four more changes on subways, end up at the last stop in Coney Island, walk five blocks. And it was early in the morning when we practiced. We didn't have prime time and all this. And carried a hatchet in his hockey bag in case he got mugged or attacked on that trip. Uh, um, took him about two and a half. Yeah. Regular hatchet. Right. A hatchet. Wow. You know, like a tomahawk hatchet. Sure, sure. And, and he come and he'd practice. He'd work very hard. He, he just he wasn't any good. He just wasn't a good player. And I had much better players, but I loved his spirit and his the whole thing of what he had to go through to play. I just loved it. Plus, you don't want to cut. I was in my 20s then. I didn't want to cut a guy, Golden Glove champion in New York. <laughs> what if he got pissed? You know, I'm finished. So, and he had a hatchet on top of it. So anyway, he, uh, I had a, I called him over one day after one of the practices. I said, Nikki, I got to be honest with you. You're not going to make our team. I'm really sorry. It's not personal. I would love for you to have earned the position. You did your best. You work really hard. I know you love the game and you, you don't want to give up on it. But I have better players than you right now. He said, I see. And he said, what do I do? I said, well, I'll, I'll call Red Macklin. He's the coach. He was a cop. He's the coach of the New Hyde Park Arrows. And I'll see if I can get you there. And uh, I don't know how you're going to get there. Don't worry about it. You ever hear of the Long Island Railroad? I said, yeah. He said, I don't care if it takes five hours each way. I want to play hockey. Mm. So I called Red, talked to him. I said, why don't you give him a shot? He did, and he made his team. Wow. He made his team, wow. which thrilled me. But Nikki's final words to me that day were, "Lou, you're gonna, you're gonna regret this. Someday you're gonna see me at the garden." I said, "The way you want to be an usher?" 
And, uh, oh, 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 oh. and he oh. said that to me. And I said that to him, kidding, but still, what a mean thing. I would never say it again. But I said that to him. And off he went. And he, and, and, and he instead of going back and forth, he made a deal with Al Eichinger, who owned that rink. <clears throat> He'll get, you know, I don't know what, what he paid him, but dollar an hour probably. He said, you'll be my night watchman. And in a little room next to the Zamboni, you don't have to go back because you got practice that night. So just, I'll put a cot in there for you, Nicky. You could sleep there or something like that. Jeez. So that's what Nicky did. And, and what he did was he melted. Eichinger wouldn't let him use any lights in the building other than that what the fire department said. You have to have exit lights by the doors or something. Wouldn't let him turn a light on. So Nicky got some candles, <clears throat> melted the tip down, stood them up on the sideboard, had a rubber suit, and he would practice skating for endless hours, mm. handling the puck, shooting it, and he could shoot the puck. He became a great shooter so uh, and a great skater. And uh, there's a story of a self-made guy. Then one day I'm reading the World Telegram and uh, sports, and a little article in there that said Nick Fatil, a former uh, youth ice hockey player from New York City, is now playing in some league, Cape Cod League or Cape Cod. Or he played for the Cape, Cape Cod Cubs, yes. Okay. And it was a real nice article. You know, and Nicky's interviewed. He says, I don't make any, much money, hardly anything, but, you know, you can learn to live on pizza, and uh, I love playing and all this. I was very touched by it. And I made 60 bucks a week. And I had to pay rent and every electric, you know, gas. So I folded up carefully a $20 bill. I never owned a checkbook then or anything. Mm. Had nothing to put in it. So I folded it up and I I put it in a folded up envelope, inside an envelope. And I mailed it to Cape Cod, Cod Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, again, no zip, no address. <laughs> he got it. He got it, and I put a note in. I said, well, this, uh, I'm not coming to see you play at the Garden, and I know you like pizza. I do, too, but <laughs> this is all I can afford right now. This is just something to maybe help you get through a week. And uh, he appreciated that. And, and I never heard from him again, so I'm in New York. Herb Brooks is now coaching the Rangers, and Craig Patrick's the GM. And I called Craig and said I'd love to come in. Uh it sold out. He said, no, how many tickets you need? I said, two. Because I brought a friend, Leon Bloom, from the Bronx, a real good guy. It's a kid Jeff had played for me. And uh, he's a big Ranger fan all his life. He's dead now. But he made it to 92. Mm. But anyway, uh, so uh, it, Craig said, and I'm going to give you, I'll give you two press passes because I'll tell Herbie he'll want to see you. I said, all right, after the game, he said, come down to the dressing room, Mary. You'll be able to with that pass. And uh, thanks, Craig. And, of course, there were two tickets, window 21. And uh, picked them up. Leon and I watched the game. After the game, we went out. And I forgot about what I said to Nikki. And um, I see Herb, and he's happy to see me. And we had a really great visit. And introduced him to Leon, who was a good guy, but he liked to tease. You know, he'd say to him, he says to Herbie, let me ask you a question. Power play. Herbie said, you too? 
<laughs> you too don't start. And all of a sudden, the dressing room door burst open, and several of the players that I had coached in previous years or knew all came over to say hello. And they're very, finally, Nicky comes out, dripping wet, towel wrapped around him, big smile on his face. He said, you get the tickets I left you? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, That's oh, it was a great. It, it was a great time, and I had the good fortune to. Uh, I was coaching the U.S. national team, and I told everybody, I said, "All right, I'll do it again this year." But uh, I, I want to. I want Nick Patillo to come as my assistant coach, and he he's coached, and he he deserves this opportunity. I really want him to come, and I. They said okay. They didn't even know who he was. Some of them. They said okay, and I took Nicky. He did. He's really a smart hockey guy. Mm. He did a great mm. job. Mm. I, I was Wayne. He did a great. I learned some things from him. He did a great, great job. I always wanted him to be to get a chance to be the coach of the New York Rangers with the two Mullen boys working with him. I, 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 it would have been so great. Uh, New York hockey. I, I I don't know if you remember this, but I came with Nikki the the night um, uh, that you inducted Emil Francis into the USA Hockey Hall of Fame, and we were afterwards we were taking pictures. It was Nikki and myself and the cat and and you, and you said to me, "This guy right here could coach the Rangers right now." And Nikki oh, just Nikki just lit up. I mean, he's such a He's so knowledgeable, works his behind off, and uh, you know that's a, that's a great thing that uh, that's a great opportunity that you gave him. I want to switch gears here real quick, Coach, because I want to get your thoughts. Um, I mentioned at the outset of our program, and this is a walk down memory lane. I'm your host, Wayne Soares. It's brought to you today by Kamali Electric, and our guest today is a very, very, very dear family friend, hockey legend, uh, vice president of special projects for USA Hockey, Lou Vero. You were a major part of the 1980 gold medal Olympic hockey team, gold medal winning. What what separated that team from the others during that tournament at the Olympics? Okay, good question. Number one, I've said this from day one, and I'll say it again. People have no idea how good that team was talent-wise. They were great hockey players. Uh, I, I have never seen a more appropriate coach for an appropriate team. It was just magic. Herb and Craig Patrick were sensational, and those plays were. And it just clicked and worked. Let me tell you, I get really angry when I hear miracles about miracles. That was not a miracle. They won that game. They earned it. They deserved to win it. Jim Craig was fabulous. Well, that's what he's supposed to be. A world-class goalie should be great. Uh, when you look at the defensemen on that team, big, strong guys, Kenny Morrow, Mike Ramsey. He had a, a Hall of Fame career with uh, in the NHL, Mike Ramsey. Um, Kenny Morrow, same thing. Uh David Christian, one of the greatest American players ever, mm. to play any position. Fabulous. Uh, 
O'Callaghan from Boston. What a player. What a man. Big, strong boss. And you had Suter and Baker. These guys were good, good players. Really good. The forwards were sensational. And I'll highlight three of them for you. Three of the greatest sentiments ever developed in the U.S. were on that team. Neil Broughton, Mark Johnson, whose nickname is so appropriate, Magic, like the basketball guy, Magic Johnson. That's right. And Mark Pavlich, who's going through some tough psychological times right now, but doesn't take away that he was a great player. You know, I believe in 1982, each of those guys led their respective NHL team in scoring. Um, they had great careers wherever they wherever they played. They had uh, great great careers. Uh, Wellsy did his job. The wingers did their jobs. Michael Ruzioni, he's a legend in Boston hockey. Mm. He was a way better player than ever given credit for. He was a goal scorer. You know, people say, "Oh, because he scored one." No, he didn't score one. He scored a lot of goals. Mm, that's and right. He had character and leadership ability. He was a real goal scorer. He snapped that shot past Mushkin. And people said, yeah, well, Mushkin was in goal. Well, let me tell you, one year previous, I was at the game in Madison Square Garden in 79. I think it was February 79 when the NHL All-Stars played the rubber game best of three against the Soviet Union. That's right. Bowman against Tikhanov. They're not going to get better coaches than these guys. Mm. And who do you think started in goal in the deciding game for the Soviet Union? It wasn't Tradiak. No. It was Mushkin. Mushkin. That's right. And, and what do you think the final score was? 6 nothing. He so, shut him out. That's right. That's so, right. Don't belittle Arruzioni because he didn't score it against Tradiak. He scored it against the world-class elite goalie, Mm -hmm. and he could do that. So um, that's how I feel about it, because we beat that year a great team from Czechoslovakia. Mm. Germany, Romania, a very good team from Finland. Their goalie, Jorma Balten, and he's good friends of mine. I see him every couple of years. Uh, He's a Hall of Fame, international IHS Hall of Famer. At the time, he was one of the better goalies in Europe, and he was not easy to beat that day, but we got him. And 4-2 win, and Finland was good. We beat a, uh, We tried a very, very good Swedish team. Probably the most talented team in that tournament. Was yeah, they could skate, too. Yeah. Was, oh, they were talented. Mm. Mm. They had Matt Nadlin. They had Kelly Lindbergh, Thomas Janssen, Thomas Eriksson. London, they had a hell of a team. So that was not a lucky team. It was a great hockey team that deserves every accolade they've ever received. Amen to that. I want to ask yeah. you, Coach, um, you share a very close relationship, as you do with many players, with Willie O'Ree, who was the first African-American player to play for the Boston Bruins. Um, he's now an ambassador for the NHL and you had um, you had direct involvement in that. That was uh, that was uh, something that, uh, that that you made happen. Well, you know, it's so interesting to see, and 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 um, it's about time we had real equality in our country, and 
and fair justice for everybody. Uh, I think 99% of the people in our country would be for us that. Um, it's great to see that, uh, you know, everybody's getting a much better chance. But in 1992, I was working with USA Hockey and I was director, I still am director of special projects and I had to come up with projects so I could eat. And I, I, <laughs> I, I said, I thought back to my days when we were playing roller hockey. I had a black friend. I grew up in a housing project uh, in Brooklyn. And I had a black friend named Ralph Feast, a hell of a kid. Great, real good athlete. And I said to Ralph, I said, Ralph, why don't you play hockey with us? You play everything else. Why don't you play, you know, roller skate hockey, but it's hockey. Why don't you play hockey with us? He said, no, nah. he said, Negroes don't play hockey. I said, yes, they do. There's a guy on Boston. I, I go to Ranger games. There's a guy in Boston's coming in Wednesday night. You want to go to the game? He said, how much is it? I said, 50 cents. He said, I don't know if I can. I said, don't worry about coffee. We'll sneak on. We did. And uh, we went. He got the money. I got the money. I had a paper out. And we went to the game. And Willie was playing. I have a picture in my office. Willie's in it, Camille Henry, I think. I don't know who's the A few players that you'd uh, recognize from those days. It was 1960-something. And uh, Willie had an assist that night. Uh, so I saw him play, and then Ralph did take up hockey because he saw him. He didn't last that long, but he did try. And, and that was his inspiration, the fact that Willie was playing. Wow. And Willie was good. Willie was a good player. And uh, a very great skater, great athlete. And so I remembered that. And uh, years go by, and I, I start this diversity task force. But I didn't call it that. I just said inner city hockey. And then a guy called me, Brian McBride, who lives in Boston now, a really great guy. And Brian called me, and he's, he's African-Canadian. He was adopted, I think, by a Canadian family, and he grew up in Canada, so he loved hockey. And uh, he's a real smart guy. He, was, he got hired by Bettman at the NHL, and I'll tell you, Gary Bettman is legit. He believes in, in opportunity for everybody and fairness, and I can tell you, I've dealt with him a few times. The guy has really uh, done a great job in that area, that's, in all areas. That's he, great. He's yeah. really good. Yes, he has. He shouldn't be booed. Fans are stupid that boo the guy. The guy's done a great job. Mm. So anyway, getting back to Willie, Brian says, you know, Lou, we, we got to get the word out to more programs. So far we got eight. Well, anyway, Brian called me, introduced himself. I'm working with the NHL. We want to be involved. That's when it got changed, the diversity uh, task force or something. And uh, the NHL USA Hockey Diversity Task Force and they put a lot of money into it, the NHL did. They did more than we did. They put a lot in. They put their mouth, money where their mouth was. And Bryant was great. And he was just the right guy because I'm a hockey guy. and I think I am. He's, he's a hockey guy slash he's a businessman. He knows how to get things done and like that. I don't know about PR and marketing and all that. I don't care about that. So, uh, I mean, I care, but I don't know about it. Sure, So, sure. Bryant uh, 
Brian said to me one day, we need to get this publicized more so more kids know about it. I said, I, you know my feeling on that. No exploitation. Let's do it for the right reason. These kids of color who want to play, they deserve a chance to play. That's just, that's how I felt. I would be embarrassed. Coming from my background in Brooklyn, you know, lower middle class at best, mm. uh, you don't want to exploit people and make them look like they're getting a handout or charity. Right. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I want them to feel they earned it and they deserve every everything everybody else has or has an opportunity to get. So he said, Lou, I'm telling you, we got to, too bad there's, you know, there were no black players that we could uh, name it after and get some PR that way. Mm. I said, oh, there is. There's a guy named Willie O'Ree. I saw him play. The last he played was in uh, San Diego, I think. I think he's still alive. Mm. Um, I could find out. He said, what's his name? I said, Willie O'Ree. He wrote it down. I said, he said, I'll call John Halligan, who was in charge of uh, alumni at the NHL. And John was a former New York Ranger employee. He's passed on one of the greatest people I've ever met in the game. And he called John. John had everything, his name, his address. Where Willie was working as a night watchman, Coronado Hotel in San Diego. And now he's ambassador for the NHL. So <laughs> we got him hired. And, and, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And he's one of the most distinguished, wonderful people you'll ever get to meet. And uh, we called it the Willie O'Ree uh, Tournament. And we had an all-star game with different groups of kids every nice. every year for years and years and, and now it's graduated uh, very nice ladies been hired by the NHL Mrs. Uh, Kim Davis she's doing an outstanding job I hope people will will support her and understand that if we're going to be one nation and I and this really hit me when I was I, I was lucky enough now I say lucky enough I didn't join. I didn't like it, but to be a veteran and to serve in the military for your country, it's, to me, the highlight of my life. Nothing I've ever had a chance to do or done is better than that. Well, and I had seven black roommates in Germany, and we were a family. We were a team. We would have died for each other in a heartbeat. And that's the way it should be across the country with every group of people. Jews, Italians, Irish, Portuguese, Black, Spanish, Hispanic. It shouldn't matter. We should be one family, respectful of each other and united. And we'll have a better world if we do that. I, I completely agree with you on that, Coach. Completely agree. Going back to what you said, you, you're, a, you're a hockey guy, a gentleman who you coached, uh, outstanding NHL hockey player. Pat LaFontaine had said about you that Lou Vero has such tremendous passion for the city of New York and for the game of hockey. You can, you can feel it. He has it in his heart, and you can feel it by being around him. Another gentleman that you coached, in, and he's become a very, very, very good friend, and he's, he's back for my second annual celebrity golf tournament uh, to benefit homeless and disabled veterans October 13th, a gentleman who you said had Hall of Fame potential, Dave Jensen, who you coached. 
Yeah, you just mentioned two of the most. Look, I've been very lucky. I can't say I coached. Yeah, those guys I coached had them for a season, but a lot of guys I had on national teams and that or camps, I didn't really coach them on a, a, a team very long. It would just be a short period of time. So, but you can put in Paychuk and Madonos and Leeches and Ch- well, Chelios I did coach, but I mean, uh, you could name fifty great players that I've had the privilege of being the coach of a team they played on. Let's put it that way. Not that I coached them. Um, and Pat and Dave Jensen were absolutely fabulous players. Uh, Dave was right there, stride for stride with Pat. They played on a line with another really great hockey player, Eddie Olchuk. In fact, Eddie Olchuk, I never felt got the credit he deserved. As a player, he was one of the very, very best players that I ever coached. I'm just telling you, he was something special. And with those two guys, they called it the diaper line because there's <laughs> one was 17, 118, and 120, 119. <laughs> and they're playing against, you know, world class elite men's teams before these guys played in the NHL. Mm. So those teams were legit in the Soviet Union. Czechoslovakia, and that's what it was called. It was now it's two countries, and all that, and 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 they competed and beat them as much as they got beat by them. And those were men, grown men, they were playing against. Mm. Uh, these kids were great, and David A. Jensen was an absolute magnificent player. Serious injuries and a little immaturity, probably. I mean, broke into the NHL at nineteen. Uh, when I had him with the Olympic team, I made him live with a family. And he didn't like that. Him, old Chuck, how I afraid he, they were kids. They're still in school. Um, I made them live with families. And uh, I checked on them. I had a, I checked their homework. You can believe it. On bus trips. That's what Dave, Dave, said, that's what Dave told me. <laughs> you, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that should have continued, I feel, in the NHL. Uh I remember when I was with the Devils, we had these kids coming straight out of junior. I mean, staying in the Holiday Inn on Route 44 and uh, eating hamburgers. No, there's not a way to do it. When you get players that young, uh, and if the NHL guys are listening, house them. There were great families that would love to house, have them. And this way you can control their off-ice antics also. Um, when you're young and alone and and uh, famous or going to be famous, there's too many temptations and not enough discipline. Sometimes living with a family, eating properly, having their laundry done, and just being with humans to converse with that care about them is uh, very important. Don't just say, okay, you're on your own. Go get an apartment, three or four of you. Uh, it's too big an investment for you as a business, if nothing else, than to risk that. Yeah, that's a great point because, Coach, I think that's what that's what the Cape Cod Baseball League does. You come in, you have host parents, okay. and uh, yeah, it, it's, that's right. it's, they it's, do. it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing that they have in place there. Before well, we, I did it in junior, yeah, junior hockey, we did it, and we had host families. We pay them, and they, you know. You knew where the kids were all the time, and, and you know they were 
being nurtured, not just on the ice playing hockey. As as we wrap this up, Coach, how does Lou Vero want to be remembered? And I, you're not going anywhere yet, but I want to just I want to ask you that I want to ask you that question. Yeah, you don't know something I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we went around for a long time, Coach. But but how how would you like to be remembered? Well, it's a. Uh, I never thought of it. I, I. You know what? You know, people really aren't really remembered. Um, I never thought of that because I was saying when I was talking to some Russian kid once, and I said, "And your great coach, the father of your hockey." Anatoly Tarasov, and I was explaining something. They looked at me. They said, "Who? They didn't. They don't know who he is. Mm. Mm. They don't know." And and uh, if they didn't make the movie The Miracle, not too many people would know who Herb Brooks is. Mm. And the generation coming up, they don't know who Bob Johnson is anymore. Mm. When I talk, tell a story about Bob Johnson, they don't know. They don't know who Fred Shearer is. They don't know. Mm. I don't think. I don't think it's important. Um, I, I, I just don't think it's very important. Well, um, how about if I never thought about it? How about if you ask me the question of how I would remember Lou Vero? No, I, I just know how I want to go. <laughs> no, and, I would, I would remember you as one of the. Can most... I tell you how I want to? I know how I want to die. <laughs> can I tell you? Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know if it's allowed on radio. <laughs> Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to get shot by a jealous husband. I think that'd be a, a good way to go. Jeez. <laughs> well, I would remember. Uh, I, I think of you as a, as I said it before, a, a dear family friend, one of the most humblest and uh, and classiest individuals, and a, and a great and a great mentor to me over the course of the years. And you well, are a, truly a valued a valued friend. And uh, really want to thank you so much for for taking the time today and. Being with us here in a walk down memory lane, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have, Coach. Well, yeah, I have, and, and uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate your call, and 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 I appreciate what you do for veterans and veterans' families everywhere in the country, and it's real important. These are brave people who the ones who join and uh, and are ready to go to battle for the honor of our country and protection of our country are really much more important than most careers that anybody could ever have. So uh, well, I appreciate what you do for our veterans. Thank you. Thank you very much. It means a lot You're coming welcome. from you, Coach, and, and thank you for your service to our great country. My guest here in a walk down memory lane has been Lou Vero, Vice President of Special Projects for USA Hockey, hockey legend. Thank you so much, Coach. You're and welcome. Have a good one. You too. We'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. This has been this has been a walk down memory lane with my guest, hockey legend, hockey icon, Lou Vero. We'll see you again next week.